Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead, turn to Acts 21. Acts 21, continuing our series. I think we're down to four more weeks here in the church that Jesus builds series through Acts. We started this last September, so we're really kind of coming, coming to the tail end of this whole series. If you're on a device, you want to go to the ESV version so you can follow along. Well, in Acts 21 last week, we read that Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem. He's been making this journey to Jerusalem. He feels compelled by the spirit to go to Jerusalem, to go to the elders, report everything that he's seen and done. And we found three things that potentially threatened Paul's mission last week in Acts 21, which was emotions, misconceptions, and aggression. Um, emotions, not a bad thing, but people didn't want to see Paul uh, continue the journey to Jerusalem because they knew that some things, some potentially harmful and painful things were awaiting him there. So they pleaded for him not to go, but he said, hey, I feel compelled by the spirit to go. I have to obey God. So he goes, he gets to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he realizes that some misconceptions, some misunderstandings about the work that he's done with the Gentiles have been brought to light. And so he uh, goes through a purification ritual in order to show everybody that he hasn't abandoned the Jewish law, being a, a, a Jewish follower of Christ himself, but he also understands that these Gentile believers that have come to know Christ, they're not held under the same conviction of the law that he is. And so he, uh, he did everything he could to sort of tear down some of those misconceptions. And then, of course, he was faced with aggression at the end because these Jewish People from Asia keep following him around. They keep finding him and hounding him and they just, they want to see him destroyed. They want to see his work diminish. Um, and so he's faced with aggression. And so this is a little bit of where we're picking up this morning uh, at the end of Acts 21, verse 37. This is what Luke wants us to hear, who is the writer of Acts. He, he wants us to hear Paul's defense of the gospel. He wants to hear Paul's story of the gospel, which he communicates through the story that God wrote and was writing for him. And so what we're gonna see this morning is that Paul has a story, it's different than our stories, but it shares a lot of similarities to our stories. And the, and the biggest thing that it shares a similarity with is that it's a rewritten story. And so if you find yourself as, as a person that has come to know Jesus at some point in your life, what you really have reflected there is a rewritten story. So when Jesus saved Paul uh, from the, just the depravity, we would say, and from the depth of his sin, Paul's story shifted. It shifted main characters, really, from himself to Jesus, who was then given top billing. And that's a story, believe it or not, very much like your own story in that the details that led to your salvation, by the way, they're never minimized. But in fact, those details, what they do is they then maximize the one responsible for your salvation, the one who is rewriting your story, right? It's, it's a story arc that you now have uh, that's been resurrected in a lot of ways from a, a plot that was only limited to personal failures and successes because that was really the highlight of your life. But it's now been changed to one that has been rewritten by Jesus. And now it has a redemptive ending that by the way, everybody longs for, that listens and reads and loves about stories. 
Many of you probably watched uh, the Michael Jordan documentary, came out about a month ago, way to keep it current, I know, um, called The Last Dance. What was interesting um, was hearing a lot of my friends, who by the way are bigger basketball fans than I am, I know, shocker, right? Um, but was it, what was interesting when I, when I asked them about it, and I did see some of it, I didn't see the whole thing, um, but what they told me was that by the end of it, they weren't convinced that Jordan was a better basketball player than they thought he was. They, they already knew that. They, they already knew the legend that he, he was. That was intact, but they were left, they told me, with a kind of emptiness because what they realized was that Jordan's life, and all due respect to Jordan, of course, points to nothing really greater than how great he was on the court. At the end of the day, Jordan's life is a testimony, really, to Michael Jordan. And in the end, that's not all that helpful for us, is it? Right? It's inspirational until you hit the same ceiling that Jordan hits, except, of course, he, he has a vaulted ceiling, right? So his ceiling maybe is a little bit higher than ours. But here's what my point is, is Jordan can inspire me or you to work toward achieving our dreams, right? But how on earth is that going to help me when my dreams come crashing down or when my dreams were never achieved in the first place? That kind of inspirational story has no power to release me from the weight of my unmet expectations or just those resounding failures that we experience in life. That's not the kind of story that's going to help me. It might inspire me, but it's not gonna have a lot of, uh, it's not gonna have a lot for me in the end, but a gospel story, which is what we're gonna see today, it's grounded in a greater glory. It's grounded in a glory greater than anything you could accomplish on your own. And it gives you a future that, that guards you against looking back in nostalgia at the glory days or being sidelined with regret for everything that didn't happen the way that you wanted it to happen. So when we look at Michael Jordan's story, though it's impressive, and it is, in a, just about a million different ways, it adds a weight that I'm unable to bear if that's all I'm aspiring to. But Paul's story arc, it tells us something about our stories that not only frees us, like we just really sang from the weight of failed expectation, but it recovers our narrative. It recovers our story into something beautiful, into something helpful, into something that shines a light into the storylines of other people. And so here's how it's shaped for us this morning. It's very simple, this sort of story arc of Paul's story. It was simply this, he was far from Jesus, but Jesus drew near to him to go far with him and use everything that he was for the sake of the gospel. And that really mirrors our story if we find ourselves like Paul, someone who's been saved by God's grace. So let's begin by just looking into the backdrop that led to Paul's defense. That's 21 verse 37. You can just pick up right there with me and it says this. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Well, Paul replied, well, I, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, and I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul 
standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, chapter 22, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So Paul begins by establishing clarity about who he was. It turns out that he's not this Egyptian Jewish nationalist who had led a revolt some three years earlier. It turns out he was actually a Greek-speaking Roman citizen from a major city who was trained by a well-known Jewish rabbi we're going to see here in a minute named Gamaliel. So his background as he comes into making this defense and sharing his story is important. It was important for him to set it up the way he set it up. His background mattered. By the way, so does yours. Paul's not bragging here what we're going to see, but his background provides context. It provides credibility for what he's about to say about God. And by the way, so does yours. We learn something here from the character of Paul here that tells us how important it is to provide some measure of personal clarity toward developing a relationship with the people that we're engaging with. As soon as they hear him speak in their native Hebrew, what does it say? It says they quiet down even further. Paul has their ear. But we also don't want to miss the gentle and reasonable matter in which he gains it. And then understand that we gain people's ears the same way. You know, when you're trying to get somebody to listen to you, it usually doesn't come from shouting and demanding to be heard but it comes from a a Jesus-like meekness, which is what we see here with Paul. And this is what he says in verse three. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So Paul is letting them know, this is my story. This is where I came from. This is who I am. It's important for you to understand that given what I'm about to say, which was this. I was far from this man, Jesus. And this is what he says. We pick up in verse four. He says, I persecuted this way or I persecuted Christians to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. And from them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul here was a man who was zealous for God. That's indisputable, but he was not jealous for God. And more specifically, he wasn't jealous for God's son. So his actions there as having a zealousness for God was that he persecuted this thing called the way, which was an early way to describe the Christians. He persecuted Christians to the death, carrying out the orders of both the high priest and the council of elder. He had some weight behind him. It wasn't like he was just some guy that just said, hey, I think it'd be fun today to start persecuting Christians. No, he had the church He had the Jewish religious leaders behind him, prompting him, 
funding him, pushing him out there, saying, here's your mission, Paul. And Paul obeyed, being a Pharisee himself. Paul thought, don't miss this, that he was close to God. But it turns out that he was actually far from God's son, which is the only way a person can be close to God. Do you know that before Jesus came near to you, that you were in fact far from him? I mean, you may have been close to the people he was close to. You may have even shown up to the place where people worshiped him every Sunday. But Paul is illustrating to us an important point here, which is that we can think we're living a life for God without having a transformed heart for God's son. We can be fooled. We can even be zealous for God, but have no peace with him because we have not received the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We can have shallow and misguided commitments. We can claim to love God, but perform unloving deeds, think unloving thoughts, and post unloving words towards our neighbor. This was Paul's story. First John 2 verse 11, John tells us, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There is a spiritual blindness for those who might even be zealous for God, but who don't have any love for God's son, Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual blindness for one who was far from Jesus. And by the way, we've all been that person. And Paul was that person. Like Paul, you were once far from Jesus. I once was lost in darkest night. That was the first line we sang this morning when we sang All I Have is Christ at the beginning of our time of singing. We were once far from Jesus, but Jesus, like he did with Paul, he drew us near. He drew you near. Let's pick up in six. It says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, speaking of Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, 
why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul describes the moment that Jesus drew near to him. And let's not miss the kindness and grace of Jesus as his light infiltrates the darkness that Paul lived in and intervenes with absolutely zero cooperation from Paul. Jesus just draws near to him. Such is the grace of Jesus, who Paul tells us he told the Ephesian church in 2.4, he said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This is exactly what is happening to Paul right here. Jesus surrounds Paul with a great light that all could see, but only Paul was given understanding to hear an illumination for the eyes of his heart to finally understand who Jesus was. And look how Jesus frames his conversation with Paul. It's so interesting of all the things Jesus could have said to Paul. He asks, why? First question, why are you persecuting me, Saul? I think about the way the Lord, if I would have seen him, the way Paul saw him, I wonder the way the Lord might have framed the question to me. I wonder if he would have said it like this, Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronald, maybe use my, my proper birth certificate name, Ronald, Ronald, why do you try to obey my laws without any love for me? That's probably some manner in which he may have asked that question. I wonder how Jesus would have framed the question for you, right? Why do you keep trusting in your family's religion to save you over my sacrifice on the cross? Maybe you would have asked, why are moral values more important to you than grace and mercy and justice? Maybe he would have said, why are you content to say you're a follower without ever obeying my words. Jesus asks Paul, why? Why are you persecuting me, Paul? And of course, the surprise sort of plot twist in the story of Paul's conversion is not that he was being saved from sinning against Christians. Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my church, Paul? Why are you persecuting Christians, Paul? It's why are you persecuting me? What Jesus was saving Paul from was sinning against Jesus himself. That's a really important thing to remember when we think of our own story of salvation. We remember how David in the Psalms confessed to God after he had abused Bathsheba in Psalm 51.4 and he cries out to God and he says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Jesus delivered Paul from sinning against himself. But because Paul had a zealousness for God without a love relationship with Jesus, he doesn't even know who's talking to him. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, 
of Nazareth. And there's something profound in the exchange there where in one sentence, Jesus communicates his identity to Paul and who actually Paul's sin and persecution is against. It provides us with clarity in understanding that Jesus, that Paul was far from Jesus until Jesus drew near to him. And of course, understanding this is how transformation begins. And by transformation, we're talking about the act of Jesus drawing near to you. That's a transformative thing. You know, sometimes you hear people say, this line will come up a lot. I face this line. Um, somebody might say, you call what I'm doing a sin, but look, man, I, I'm not actually hurting anyone, am I? I'm not hurting anybody, so how can you call what I'm doing a sin? Well, that's a complex issue in some ways to try and sort out because there are many different kinds of ways to hurt a person, isn't there? You can hurt a person physically, you can hurt a person mentally and spiritually and emotionally. There's all kinds of different ways that we can inflict harm on a person. But the Bible says that to whatever degree that we are able to sin against one another, our sin is always an unjustified act of rebellion against God. Granted, some of us bring way bigger sins before the Lord, like Paul. But all sin, as R.C. Sproul once said, is cosmic treason against God. It's why you are guilty. What about you, Ronnie? It's why I am guilty. It's why the only one who can offer us forgiveness is the one who we have ultimately sinned against. We were far from Jesus, but he drew near to us and he also goes far with us. Look at what it says in verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, the Lord, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Ananias here gives Paul a picture of his future in verse 15. He said, you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Get baptized, Paul. Your sins are forgiven. Call on the name of Jesus, Paul. God has a mission for you. He has drawn you near. And now he's going to send you far, but he will be with you always. And so he receives a word from Jesus warning him about lingering too long in Jerusalem. Jesus says, go, Paul, it's time to move on. And we remember, recalls that time when Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, he said, go and therefore make disciples of all nations. Remember, Jesus said, go, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
And then he said this, which I think is an important way for him to end his missional charge to these disciples. He said, and behold, behold, wait, look, remember, catch this. Let this stick in your mind, my friends. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, go, go far. And then he promises to go far with you. Jesus knows nothing of the Christian soloist. Maybe you've heard of like a solo artist. This is somebody that typically doesn't have a band that backs him, right? Solo musician. He's a guy that just grabs his guitar, his piano, and he does it on his own. Well, there's no really category for that when we talk about the Christian faith. In fact, Jesus again told his disciples in John 14, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so we get this reassurance from Jesus who has come near to us that he is going to go far with us. So wherever you are sitting today, and not just physically, I know where you're sitting today physically, I can see you. But wherever you're sitting today, emotionally, mentally, you are not in the absence of God, but in the presence of God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. What an important thing for Jesus to keep reminding us of all the way through the gospels. Paul was fearful for how people might receive him. He had good reason for that, right? And look what this guy had done, man. It was based on the havoc he'd inflicted on Christians. Talk about a reputation. How do you shed that kind of reputation? Hey, I'd love to come over to dinner. You know, that's cool. But the last time you did that to my friend, like you, you murdered him and you, you, you pulled him out of the town and you locked him up. Paul understood the reputation that he had built. But Jesus said, go, I will send you far away. You know, it's interesting when we separate from someone, when we move far away from someone, it means that, and even though we have phone calls and texting and social media, FaceTime, we have all these great ways to stay connected now, we are still not experiencing what we most long for, which is their presence, right? But when Jesus draws near, it means that geography can no longer separate you from his presence and from his love. It means that angry words, violent people, sickness, trauma, losing your job, seeing your house burn to the ground, losing all of your friends, even death cannot separate a person from the presence and the love of Jesus. There is no other connection or presence in your life quite like that one, is there? It doesn't exist. Because when Jesus draws near to you, he and the Father come to you, the Bible tells us, and they make their home with you which is what Jesus encouraged his disciples in John 14. Remember, I drew near to you and I will go far with you 
because the story you have is being rewritten. And I'm going to use all that you are to spread the message of my story, which is the gospel. And here's what happens in verse 22. Up to this word, remember Paul is speaking. They're listening. They quieted down. Then they quieted down even more. And up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribute and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The minute Paul mentions his mission to the Gentiles, any attempt to listen to him any further was gone. He knew who he was talking to. I'm guessing he suspected when he got to the part about the Gentiles, which is what they were so angry about in the first place, he knew it was going to be a trigger for them. So the Tribune, they want to find out what all the commotion is about. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand why this mob is so against Paul. So they decide to flog Paul, to whip him to see what kind of answers they might get. And to have a mob like this against somebody, we, we feel like we're missing something. So that is the method that they used until Paul informs them that he's a Roman citizen, which by the way, was a very highly valued position to be in. In fact, it was so valued that it caused fear. It caused them to withdraw in fear because they would be in big trouble if they unjustly condemned a fellow Roman citizen. Don't think for a minute that God doesn't use all that you are, everything that's happened in the past and in the present to spread his message into all of the areas that he's going to send you in the future. Paul's Roman citizenship mattered. It mattered right here. It was a highly valued commodity and God was using it to preserve Paul and to save him from the people, by the way, that Paul was originally just like. God doesn't remove your story either. He recovers it. And your recovered story sheds light on all those whose stories haven't yet been recovered. See, look, a, a saved person has a story that an unsaved person doesn't yet have. 
A safe person has illumination. Their eyes and their heart has been opened to truth. They have grace. They've understood that it was against Christ alone that they sinned, right? They have testimony. Like Paul, they're able to say, this is who I was, but this is who Christ is, and this is who I now am. A saved person also has historical moments that include things like sadness and tragedy and heartbreak and abuse and rebellion and failure and shame. All these things that are recovered by God to show how mountainous his power of forgiveness and restoration really is. My story is not impressive by Paul standards. I was a self-righteous kid who grew up in church. I was baptized in, uh, in the ocean at nine years old. I kept all the rules. I got all the grades, read my Bible and prayed daily. I was a parent's dream. But what they couldn't see was that I was a kid with a heart that had very little, if any, affection for Jesus. But I was zealous for God. You could describe me as someone who was afraid, even, that if I stopped keeping all the rules, that God was likely going to be mad if he wasn't already, and I might not make it to heaven. I had a lot of bad theology that I was living off of. And I carried a lot of weight for a lot of years. And what was the result? Well, I became a zealous Pharisee at the end of it, right? Looking down on everyone who wasn't keeping the rules like me. Because I thought it was rule keeping that was actually saving me, not the righteousness of Jesus, who by the way said our rule keeping is like dirty, filthy rags if that's all we have to offer God in order to justify us. What I forgot was that I was far from Jesus until Jesus drew me near and that he would go far with me even when I didn't keep the rules, even when I misunderstood what it was and what it meant to love Jesus and that he would use everything I was to spread his gospel of grace, of good news and so at some point, like Paul, I became really a living document. You guys know what a living document is, right? It's something that is continually edited and updated. So Scott has living documents for us as a church staff, which means, hey, here's some things we're thinking about or planning or ideas. And they just kind of get shared and shifted and everybody can add things to them and take things away. That's helpful for us to realize that that is the kind of story that we have with God. Our lives, our story is a living document that is constantly being edited and updated and rewritten by God. No matter what you write, 
No matter what someone else writes for you, you have a God you can trust to rewrite all the wrongs, to rewrite all the regrets, to rewrite all the traumas and the mistakes, and that if only I could go back and all the fears and all the anxieties about what is our world looking like right now? What is it going to look like? God always has a pen in his hand when it comes to the outcome of our stories. Because if we have a story like Paul's, here's what we actually have. We have a story, not our own. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a story. It means that our story has been rewritten by the one who is responsible for writing the greatest story, the greatest story ever told. And that is the story of a gentle and lowly man named Jesus who came to all of us who are burdened and heavy laden offering us rest and redemption for our souls. Our story, like Michael Jordan's story, like anybody's story, has limitations if it begins and ends with you or me as the hero. What a limited story that is. But with Jesus, your story can be woven into the fabric of a much larger, much grander, much more beautiful and glorious story, one that C.S. Lewis describes at the end of his book, The Last Battle, when he says, you are beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is a story that is not our own, but that is being rewritten daily for the preservation and the good of our souls by the one who gave himself for them. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when you save us, we now have a story that has been rewritten and is being rewritten by you daily. And so God, that fills us with hope that fills us with joy, it fills us with confidence. We know that even when everything feels impossibly as is, we know that you are drawing even nearer to us, drawing us nearer to you, going far with us and using everything about our past and our present to display a glory and a weight that gives testimony to your grace. Lord, we pray that in this church that would be ever seen and felt today, Lord, as we scatter and as we seek to obey your word, hear your voice, and open our hearts to you once again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.